following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Lord, we're praying for this city. Looking down from the hill. Praying for revival here. Oh, let our hearts be For the people of this city, Lord, united we will stand. By your loving grace and mercy, Holy Spirit, fill this land. Let revival come, let revival come. Let revival come, let revival come to this city, to this city. As summer turns to winter, every season brings a change, so we lay our lives before you. Just waiting for that day Love deeper than the ocean Wider than the sky Let the people know your mercy As we lift your name on high Let song of heaven in the name of Jesus Christ let revival come let revival come let revival come to this city
a firm foundation. A firm foundation. O Lord, quicken now by your spirit the word. Thank you, Jesus. There was a time when I carefully programmed the life of the church worship. Every service had to sparkle. Every service had to have something new and different. Every sermon had to have a new revelation of some wonderful truth of God. People would say to me, Pastor, I don't want to miss a service because something might happen and I would miss it. I would find a wonderful new idea and that would become my truth. And everything in my world had to be looked at through the glasses of my new truth. And everyone around me had to come in agreement with my new truth. Such foolishness. There is no new truth. The truth was revealed on Calvary. Jesus is the truth. I'm not looking for a new Messiah. I'm not looking for some wonderful idea that will set me free. I am looking for Jesus. He is called in the Greek. The Logos. The Logos means the idea, the conceptual idea behind everything that has been created. In Jesus are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom from the ages. There is nothing new. The new has been revealed. His name is Jesus. Now, yes, it's exciting and it's necessary to have new revelations of Jesus. But we don't need new ideas to tickle our intellectual funny bone. We don't need to salivate over the latest and the greatest concept or compete with one another on who has the best one. Jesus has been revealed at Calvary. That is the revelation that brings us into salvation. That is a revelation we can relax in, we can rest in, we can be assured of. 
He's not going to pull a new bunny out of the hat. Muhammad tried that. There is not another God who is going to come. Except that one called the Antichrist. Filled with demon power. But with pleasing words. That we have to really find that place of absolute rest and peace in Jesus at the cross. Because that's where God manifested himself with such magnificent power that everything else is given meaning by understanding it in the light of the cross. And then the glorious revelation of Jesus resurrected. The resurrection just put the stamp on everything Jesus had done and said, see, he was the son of God. And everything he said was true. And we can trust it. Oh, now, this is something I can rest in. One of the reasons I had a difficult time in school was that I started school early. And I was overwhelmed by all of the flow of information that was pouring out. It wasn't until I became an adult that I finally understood that there are a finite number of things that we have to learn. It's not an infinite process of of learning your times tables. There are only so many times tables. It's not as though it's an endless. And I thought it was endless as a child. And I said, I can't learn endlessly the times tables. Well, likewise with Jesus, there is not an endless number of things we have to know about him to enter into him fully. There is a foundation that has to be laid, and that foundation has to be solid. And it's not a foundation that we're going to dig up constantly to make sure we have the right foundation. When that foundation is laid, it's laid on rock. And we can safely build on that foundation. Jesus makes this astonishing statement in Matthew, the seventh chapter. I'll begin with verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, every person is bearing fruit. Each of us is bearing fruit. Jesus is the fruit tester to determine what the fruit of our life is. 
And based on the fruit of our life, we will or will not enter fully into the kingdom of God. Now, as our brother Kevin so wonderfully laid out for us, the fruit we bear is dependent upon the seed that has been planted. Every seed produces after its kind. So if we have planted in us the seed of sin, we will produce sinful fruit. But if we have planted in us the seed, Jesus Christ, then the fruit of our life will be righteousness. Because every fruit comes from a seed. And every seed produces after its kind. I've never seen an apple tree struggle to produce apples. It's a natural part of life. He doesn't struggle to produce a golden, delicious apple. But you know when you bite into it, the quality of the fruit. Versus biting into a crab apple. As a child, I didn't know the difference. Until mom said, yes, Ray, take a bite out of that. Then I knew the difference. So tonight, if the Lord takes a bite out of your life, will he be biting a golden delicious or a crab apple? It's simply based on what seed has been planted in your life. And what are you producing? And then he makes this shocking statement. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So not every person who calls himself a Christian is going to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because as he tests the fruit, he will say, that is not my fruit. Only the fruit of Christ opens the way for us to enter into the kingdom of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? He's saying that in the judgment day, there are going to be a whole large congregation of people who are going to be saying, but I should not be here. I belong with them over there. There has been a mistake. I should be at your right hand. I am not a goat. I am not a crab apple. Look at what I've done. I've done much. And they will protest. They will say, this is not fair. You have misunderstood me. 
You don't understand, Jesus. I did my best. I produced the very best fruit I could for you. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers or you lawless ones. I want you to go back with me in chapter 7. To verse 15. Go back with me to verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. I listened to a nationally syndicated talk show today with two pastors leading it. They were speaking about repentance. And because they were speaking about repentance, they caught my ear. So I stayed right there. I wanted to know what they'd say about repentance. And one pastor said, we've misunderstood repentance. We have cheapened it. He said, repentance means really only one thing that I will repent of not believing that Jesus is the Christ. He said, repentance should not be applied to any other sin except the sin of unbelief. He said, no, smoking is a sin. And he went on to name many different things. And he said, all of these things are sin. But then he made the most astounding statement. He said, sin will never keep a person out of heaven. Only unbelief that Jesus is the Messiah will keep a person out of heaven. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Here's where I'm struggling tonight. I've been before the Lord, weeping before him, saying, Lord, I, I don't know how to even talk about it. I ask the Lord, can any of us in America be saved? Can any of us in America be saved? We have lived in the lap of absolute luxury. We have believed that it was our right, that it was owed to us. 
Some of you who have been on foreign missions know the trauma of many dear believers. Men and women who are serving Jesus Christ. But go to the feeding station every day to receive their three scoops of rice with a few beans. By the grace of God, they can live another day. As one man said, as he watched them walk away, it was as though their whole life was in that little plastic bucket. And then many of them couldn't eat those three scoops of rice. They had to take it home and share it with their kids. Who would take kernel by kernel and eat them till they were gone. I've never lived like that. Have you? We're Americans. We're Americans. We've lived in such absolute luxury that we have not considered our brothers and sisters and the pain of their heart. Because after all, what can I do? You know, I, I didn't ask to be born in America. Should I starve because they're starving? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to deal with in my own heart is how Jesus must look at us in America and what his judgments are about us. I don't think we should feel guilty because God has blessed us to live in America. On the other hand, when does the Christian faith stop being a hobby for us? When is the Christian faith no longer a hobby, but something that we live for, that consumes us? that is everything to us. And everything else fades into insignificance as Jesus is magnified before us so that our heart's cry is not for more food or for more stuff or for better whatever, but our heart cry is for Jesus. My wife prepared me some wonderful dinner last night. And I was able to enjoy that dinner. I was full. I was satisfied. And then we had an errand to run. And it took us right by one of our favorite restaurants. 
So I said, let's go in. You know, I could not order a meal. Do you know why? I was full. So I had a lemonade. I sat in this beautiful restaurant and I drank a lemonade. Because you had to pay something to sit at the table. They don't let you just come in and sit at the table. How can we come into the glorious place of Christ and order a filet when we're so full of the meal from Sodom and Gomorrah? That we have no room to eat the food of God. So the radio broadcast can go out day after day. And if people are interested or if there's a little hunger, they might respond. But by and large, It's like a great smorgasbord. We in America have a smorgasbord before us. And we have the privilege of picking and choosing. Because we're already so overweight. So over flooded with every kind of wonderful thing. Every want supplied. Even the poorest among us has a cell phone. How many times I've watched a homeless man going down the street, pushing his cart, talking on his cell phone. (laughs) That's why I say, can, can any of us be saved because we've so satisfied our hearts with our schedules, with our work appointments. We're so satisfied by our home arrangements. We're so satisfied by the cars we drive and by the myriad of choices we have to make every day about how we will order our lives. When is there time just to sit and eat the bread of life and drink the blood of Christ when we're already full of Sodom and Gomorrah? Part of why I moved the television out of our home was because I discovered I could not sit and watch the television and then read the scriptures. I knew one or the other had to go. But then I found 
I'm not able to spend so much time with news because then I'll be full of that. I don't have so much time to talk to people because then I'll be full of that. I don't have so much time to be concerned about my future because then I'll be full of that. I don't have time to be concerned about what people are saying to me or about me because then I'll be full of that. And anything that I'm full of, other than Jesus Christ, will limit my ability to bring the word of God into my soul. Remember, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so our heart is filled with pain. What do we do? We dive into foolishness. Foolishness seems to cover over the pain of our heart. When we're exhausted, what do we do? Turn silly. I have perhaps a crippling condition. That crippling condition is that for some reason I have a limited capacity to bring in the world. Perhaps you're able to bring in everything and have Jesus too. I can't do that. If I bring in all the world, I have no room for Jesus. And so I have to even watch my conversation. I said to my wife last night, I think... I must offend some of my dear brothers and sisters. And I don't mean to offend them. It breaks my heart. But I don't talk very much to them about me. And so they don't know the the inner working of my heart. They don't know the details of my life. And relationships are based on on sharing information and, and mutuality and I said, I, I can't do that because if I talk about myself, it will limit my ability to see Jesus. When I open my mouth, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about Jesus. If I have offended some of you and you, you think I'm distant from you, please forgive me. It's not my intent to be distant. It's my intent to limit every possible piece of information that would possibly cause me to be unable to apprehend Jesus Christ. Are you beginning to understand my struggle? I want Jesus. He's all I want. But it seems that everything has been designed in my whole American world 
to prevent me from apprehending Jesus. I was raised in a place where life was very simple. There wasn't the jangling of the telephone and there wasn't the constant stir. There was dad saying, Ray, come on out. Let's hoe corn tonight. And so my evening was spent hoeing corn or picking tomatoes or, or doing other gardening activities and then coming into the house and, and getting the Bible down and spending the rest of the evening until bedtime with dad reading the Bible to us and, and talking to us about Jesus and, and our asking him questions about Jesus. That whole way of life has disappeared. Now you have to carry a cell phone that buzzes every few minutes. And you have all these people who want to talk and you have all these things you have to do and you have all these complicated issues that have to be solved and resolved. Get this person there and get that person over here and plan this and do that. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to do any of that. I want Jesus. And my American life gets in way of my Jesus. And one or the other has to go. I can't have both. My capacity is not large enough to encompass my American lifestyle and my Jesus. Now, I've tried for many years to juggle the two. I'm just not very good at juggling. And I'm afraid one time when I drop Jesus, he'll be gone. And I won't know it because the devil will toss me something else. You know, can you hear my wife? Oh, Jan, I just can't spend time with you. I have all of these other loves I have to take care of. I don't think she'd understand. I don't think she'd be patient about that at all. I think she'd run me right out the front door. Or back door. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly. I never knew you. That word knew, you know, in the Greek, means intercourse. To become intimate, to become one. 
There is an intimacy that God is asking for in our hearts. There's an intimacy that Jesus is asking for in our hearts. But if we're being intimate with everything all the way around the block, we'll have no time, energy, or strength left for our Lord. So then he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You notice that both houses had the same circumstances come. Rain, wind, water. Both houses had a storm. Every heart will have a storm come against it. The question is, where's the foundation? Now, keep your finger there and go with me to Luke. Luke gives me a little bit of a different picture. In Luke, the sixth chapter, begin with verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? In other words, don't patronize me. Don't say to me, Lord, I love you in the worship service. And then go out and play with your other lovers. Your great American lifestyle. Saying, don't do that to me. I will show what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. George Barna the Christian pollster just released a new poll. Less than 1% of young people under the age of 23 have a Christian worldview in America. Less than 1%. The fundamental question that they disagreed with was the statement 
Do you believe that there are moral absolutes that never change? And almost without a single exception, they said no. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative. The question, do you believe that Jesus Christ was sinless? No. He was a man like we are. I mean, key point after key point, less than 1%. And his statement was most enlightening. He said, how can parents today teach their children about a Christian worldview? when they don't hold a Christian worldview. That tells me that we in America, with all of our well-paid pastors and wonderful church facilities, with all our radio and television ministries, we've missed it. There has to be a revolution in the Christian church in America. You notice I did not say revival. Most of the Christian church in America needs not a revival. They need a resurrection. Revival takes place when there's still life. Most are not even born again. There has to be a revolution. And the revolution has to start with people who are willing to say, Jesus, you're enough for me. You're all I desire. I desire nothing of this world. I give my life for you, Jesus. A people who are willing to finally settle into that place of intimacy with Jesus Christ and say, I will do what you ask me to do. Now, it's plain that the foundation that is here spoken of, this foundation that is laid on the rock, is a foundation of obedience to Jesus. The only way you can build a foundation is by doing what he prompts you to do in his spirit. And this doing of what he prompts you to do springs up out of your heart by his planting his seed of truth in your soul. You see, it's not some new idea that we need. It's a new seed that we need. That seed that will replace all of our selfish self-absorption.
You know what makes me excited? When a brother or sister calls me and we talk together. And they begin to outline for me what's occurred in their day. And they begin to speak about the progress that's been made in following Jesus. And they begin to speak about, here's where I have an issue. Could we pray together about it? Here's where I'm fuzzy. I'm not, I'm not hearing. Could we just pray about it? See, that's not talking about yourself. That's talking rather about what the Holy Spirit is doing step by step as he works out his plan in the life of that person and the ministry that God has placed them in, first and foremost, the ministry to the heart of Jesus. And see, as we come together, the Lord tells us to come together with hymns of praise, with with songs, with thanksgiving. If there's any talking one with another about ourselves, it should be, as James says, confessing our sins one to another. So that the sin is put away. And the blood is used to wash it away. And we come in victory then. Not wallowing in our mess. But the blood washes the mess away. So our conversation then needs to be about Jesus and what he's doing and the victories he's bringing and about the progress that's being made as the Holy Spirit directs and orders our steps. Now we call that in the church testimony. (laughs) Now testimony services have fallen out of the good graces of the body of Christ because there's no testimony. The testimony has been eaten up by the television or the, or the radio or the, the work or the money or the family or some other. Our testimonies have been consumed. I pray God will make us a church of testimony where we know and experience the work of the Holy Ghost. And you know what the word ghost means. The word ghost means in the old English. Guest. Holy guest. I want the holy guest to dwell in my heart. And to dwell in this church. I don't want to grieve him. With the falseness of Western American civilization. Lord, I'm so grateful you don't come condemning us. I thank you, Lord, that you come encouraging us and calling us out of the darkness of this world into the glorious light. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your gentleness, your mercy. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, 
Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. These are periled times we live in, trouble everywhere. Weary hearts will often give in to this world's despair. But high and over all, our Father knows our every care. And in His book, if you will look, you'll find His promise there. He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you upright in heart. Lift up your voice, for great is his mercy told. All who trust in the
In the Lord. 